I, I, I sound a lot worse than I feel this morning. I actually feel fine. I sound horrible. Um, and I hope that I've got enough voice to make it through these next like 12 minutes. So bear with me. Um, I have uh, had a sinus infection this week and it's kind of knocked me through a little bit of a, of a weird place and it now has landed in my voice, which is less than, less than ideal. But I'm not contagious and I feel okay. The benefit of this was that I got to spend a lot of time on the couch the last couple of days with the Kleenex box. Um, and a mug of hot tea. And you know, when you're sick, you don't necessarily want to watch a bunch of like, you know, really thoughtful and provocative dramas or whatever. Like you just kind of want to binge a little bit. So I, uh, I found Queer Eye on Netflix. I, uh, I'm, I'm just gonna guess that maybe not all of you have seen Queer Eye yet. Does any, has anybody been watching this on Netflix? Okay, good, there's a few of you that have. So this is Netflix's reboot of a 15-year-old uh, kind of silly reality makeover show from 2003. Bravo had it 15 years ago. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, remember that one? Queer Eye, the new version of Queer Eye, has been called the most wholesome show on television. If you're a fan of like the great British bake show style of reality show television, you're gonna love this. It attempts to, this new version, attempts to update some of the more problematic stereotypes that the old version kind of trucked, trucked on a little bit too much. Gave men as these fabulous arbiters of fashion and style and personal grooming and straight, straight men as these clueless schmucks in desperate need of a makeover. The original Fab Five were kind of on a mission, right? Their mission was to rid the world of mullets and pleated khakis. And the new version has got a similar setup, right? It's five gay guys who, who descend upon an unsuspecting straight guy. He's, well, he's not always straight. Sometimes he's straight, not always. They transform his wardrobe, his home, his grooming routine. And along the way, though, there's a much more, I think, much more interesting dynamic between the Fab Five, this version of the Fab Five, and their straight victims, where the old version kind of treated gay men and straight men as two completely foreign worlds, right? Two different cultures that were colliding in this conflagration of jean shorts versus pomade. The reboot, the reboot gives us, in just about every episode, some surprisingly moving examples, I think, of men connected to other men, connecting with other men across the lines that divide them. And those lines are not limited to sexuality, right? There's this really interesting conversation in like the third episode between a suburban white police officer and a gay African-American political activist about police shootings and Black Lives Matter. There's a moment of bonding between a conservative evangelical dad of five and a very out gay interior decorator who's working through his own like religious upbringing. The church that rejected him kicked him out. It's a show about men learning from other men. It's still a makeover show, but this time it's not just the straight guys who are getting the makeover. I did not expect that a city, silly little reality show I was watching while I was sick would make me weep. Maybe it was the cold medicine. I was a little... <laughs> that may have had something to do with it. But there are these beautiful and heartbreaking moments in just about every episode. It's a makeover show that isn't really about makeovers. There's a colleague of mine who is an Episcopal priest in New Jersey, and he pointed this out in an article that he wrote for an online kind of pop culture magazine called Mockingbird. He says that what Queer Eye is really about is actually something a lot closer to what our scriptures are talking about this morning, the story that we heard from the book of Genesis about Abraham and Sarah, these putative ancestors of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, the father and mother of many nations, and this covenant that God is making with them. 
And it's important for us to remember, despite what St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, that second reading we heard about how Abraham, like, never weakened in his faith. You know, Paul says, no distrust made him waver. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to his God. He was fully convinced that God was going to do exactly what God had promised. And that's beautiful. But with apologies to St. Paul, that is not the story that the book of Genesis tells. Paul is doing some pretty creative exegesis with Genesis. There's some, there's some scriptural whitewashing going on here. Because the way that Abraham is presented in the book of Genesis, he's not a laudable example, an example of laudable behavior and steadfast fidelity. God comes to Abraham not once but three times with this promise that despite Abraham's advanced age and his childless state, he's going to become the father, the ancestor of many nations. And what follows is Abraham and Sarah getting up to all kinds of disreputable and morally questionable hijinks. Right? At one point, Abraham like, pimps his wife out to the Egyptian king for sheep and oxen. Another time, they're like attempting to, to like MacGyver the whole father of many nations thing. So Abraham impregnates Sarah's slave at her suggestion in a disastrous attempt to take matters into their own hands. It does not end well. Lives are ruined in this process. Abraham and Sarah, the way that Genesis presents them, are not the like, staunchly faithful grandparents with doilies and cookies that St. Paul would have us read about. They're like wily spouse-swapping swingers out of a 1970s key party. Like they mostly mess it up, and they seem to have a heck of a lot of fun along the way of messing it up. And God never stops being faithful to them. By the time that Abraham and Sarah are in their 90s, in the story that we heard this morning, God has made this promise like three times over the years, and they have yet to see any action. It's been going on for like decades, right? And, and nothing has happened. So, you know, they're feeling maybe justifiably a little bit tired, a little bit frustrated, because when God reiterates this promise that God has made to Abraham and Sarah, I will make you the father and the mother of many nations, Abraham falls to the ground laughing uncontrollably, right? The promise is bankrupt, as far as he's concerned, he's like, yeah, I've heard this before, man. Like, nothing happens, right? This guy is not an icon of faithfulness. He's an icon of, like, defeat. And following Paul, Christians have tended to kind of, like, whitewash these ancestors of ours. Our reading actually cuts out the verse about Abraham falling to the ground laughing, right? That is a deliberate editorial choice by the people who created this lectionary. We've rendered them these, these stained glass icons of faithfulness. And it turns out that they're a heck of a lot more human than our lectionary is comfortable with, than St. Paul is comfortable with, than the church is maybe comfortable like having you know. These are not like good upstanding citizens. Where Paul gets the Genesis story right and where generations of Christian theologians have really kind of focused their attention is on the fact that God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah never depends on their good behavior. God's promise never hinges on the fidelity of their faith, the rock steadiness of their trust, the unshakability of their hope. God loves Abraham and Sarah simply because they're Abraham and Sarah and God has chosen to love them. That's it. There's actually a fancy like, theological term for that unearned love. Luther and Calvin, the other reformers, made great hay with this. The technical term 
for the way that God deals with Abraham and Sarah is imputed righteousness. Imputation is, is when you ascribe a quality to somebody that they do not actually have, at least they don't seem to have on the surface. Imputed righteousness is actually what Paul is getting at when he writes in the letter to the Romans that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him. That's the word that Paul uses. We heard it. Paul says Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Sometimes we translate it as credited to him. The idea is that there is nothing intrinsic to Abraham to make him worthy of God's favor. Dude's got nothing, right? Mostly he gets it wrong every time. But according to Paul, despite all of Abraham's shady doings, God is convinced that Abraham is a righteous man. Abraham's faith, Paul writes, is reckoned to him, it's credited to him, it's imputed to him as righteousness. God sees something worth celebrating, worth investing in, in this bumbling old fool. And God refuses to give up on Abraham despite the countless times that Abraham gives up on God. So imputed righteousness, this idea that that what God sees in us has nothing to do with the people that we actually are. Imputed righteousness, I think, is what is so compelling about this rebooted version of Queer Eye on Netflix. Because it's not a show about hapless straight guys who are getting made over by magical gay fairies who flip their wrists and make everybody fabulous. Right? It's a show about guys, about men, who have basically given up. Right? Guys like Tom. We meet him in the first episode, this 60-something divorced grandpa. He lives alone in a basement apartment. And even before he meets the Fab Five, Tom is really clear. Right? He says at the very beginning, you can't fix ugly. He says it over and over again. And to look at him, you might well say, as I did, like, dude's got a point. Right? Like, his life <laughs> is not a pretty one. He's, you know, he's not a conventionally attractive person. Tom's life basically consists of like happy hour at a sleazy Mexican restaurant. He comes home. He pushes his recliner into the backyard. and He watches TV through the door smoking cigarettes, right? What happens is not just that Tom gets a makeover, although that happens, right? His apartment is transformed, his beard is trimmed, he gets some really good advice for taking care of his lupus, his jean shorts are chucked. All of that is window dressing for the real transformation that happens for Tom. Because before these five guys change a single thing about his appearance, these people entrusted with his future tell Tom you are worthy of our time and attention because you are already a wonderful guy. You're sweet, you're caring, you're a great dad, you're a great grandpa. The only thing that's holding you back is not the lupus or the beard or the disgusting recliner. It's your lack of confidence in yourself. And at first, Tom refuses to believe them, right? He keeps saying, you can't fix ugly, you can't fix ugly. And finally, Jonathan, the grooming guy, says, you know, Tom, that's actually the ugliest thing about you. There's a lot of things, Jonathan says, that you cannot control about your appearance. You can control your confidence. And Jonathan says, nothing is sexier than confidence. So what the Fab Five call confidence, I think St. Paul calls righteousness. It's a lot more than behavior. It's a lot more than the decisions that we make from day to day. It's a spiritual quality, right? It's something that goes way deep in us. Righteousness is about knowing ourselves to be lovable in the eyes of the one who made us. It's the thing that makes us worthy to stand before a holy God and lift our heads up and be in a real relationship. Righteousness is like, is like the sexiness of confidence elevated to like a theological level. Righteousness is like feeling sexy before God, if you like. I hope I can say that without the pulpit falling in, right? But that's what Paul's talking about, right? It's divine sexiness. 
And what Paul maintains, like what, this, what these stories are about, right? Abraham and Sarah, I mean, what Jesus is talking about when he calls these weird bumbling fishermen as his disciples is that kind of like holy confidence, holy sexiness, if you like. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we, you know, practice, figure out for ourselves. It's imputed to us. It's credited to us. It's reckoned to us completely as grace, as free gift, as an unlooked-for surprise, right? Five fabulous gay guys who descend upon the basement apartment of your life and say, hey, buddy, you're fabulous, right? Righteousness is the way that the Fab Five look at Tom. From the moment that they walk into his basement, right, they see that what really needs to happen for this guy is not a new skincare routine, although, boy, that helps, Transformation happens when Tom starts believing what these guys have been telling him about himself all along. The Fab Five fall in love with Tom before they do a single thing to him. They have faith in him. They believe in him. And their belief is reckoned to Tom. It's credited to Tom. It's imputed to Tom as righteousness. They believe in Tom so that Tom can start believing in himself. And then they give him a fabulous makeover. So actually believing that we are worth God's time, that we're worth God's attention, trusting God's queer eye, if you like, the queerest eye there is, right? This gaze of love and understanding that is so eager to impute virtues to us, to name things about us that we are pretty sure are not true, right? On the surface of things, that can sound a little bit like a kind of standard feel-good, like I'm okay, you're okay message, right? Just get your groove back, dude. Get your confidence back. Everything's fine. But righteousness is actually a little more interesting than that. Because righteousness is ultimately about our salvation. And salvation is ultimately about suffering, right? It's what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of Mark when he asks his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. It's like Jesus knows that when we really like lean into this like, idea of imputed righteousness, this audacious faith that God puts in us, it actually takes us down some pretty tricky roads sometimes. I mean, there is a makeover here, but it doesn't always look like a a cleaner, brighter, shinier version of us. Sometimes it looks like a, a grittier, more honest version of us. And this season of Lent invites us to hold that tension. On the one hand, there is misery and suffering in our lives, right? We know this too well. A lot of it is caused by our own stuff, our hardness of heart, our lack of charity, our inability to love other people the way we think we ought to. I mean, we are bad at living faithfully. And Lent asks us to live up to that fact, right? To face up to that fact. And we're, we're necessary to repent of it, right? But on the other side, at the same time, we're asked to pay attention to this queer eye that God has for us. This understanding that it's actually in the midst of our suffering that God names us holy. It's when we're at our worst that God says, hey, you're fabulous, right? This God who calls bad things good and old things new and broken things whole. I mean, either God is like the worst possible J, this side of the Myers-Briggs test, or there is a different kind of spiritual math at work here. And coming to terms with the way that God loves me, that's what unlocks my ability to start loving somebody else differently. I mean, until I understand myself as worthy of God's attention, I can never learn how to love my husband that way. I can never learn how to love my parents that way, let alone my enemies, for heaven's sake. And that's what God is asking of me, 
right? Not this kind of feel-good mantra, I am worthy, I am loved, I am sexy, whatever. More importantly, it's this willingness to start behaving, to live out of that place of belonging and bring that to the rest of the world. That's called living by faith. It's not an easy task. It is the only project that is worth attempting, I think. It's the only Lenten discipline that is worth the name, right? What will it profit me if I gain the whole world and never learn how to love somebody that way? Like, what's the point? I mean, if I can, what can I give, Paul says? What can I give in return for that knowledge? And the answer is nothing, right? You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's grace. It's unlooked for, unasked for, comes from some weird and wonderful place that is both like deep in the center of my being and at the same time is completely external to me. It's the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. And it descends into my life like five fabulous queer guys declaring, you are absolutely the most fabulous thing we have ever seen. And we love you too much to let you stay that way. It's time for your makeover.